Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 26, Judges chapters 18 and 19. Judges chapter 18 is the story of the tribe of Dan looking for a new place to live. And despite the appearance of this story in the final chapters of the book of Judges, this event actually took place just a few decades after Joshua's death, at around the time of the first judge of Israel, Othniel. Now, to help explain that the era of the Judges was one of spiritual darkness for Israel, the culprit being a return to the old ways of their Egyptian style of religion mixed with the Canaanite mystery Babylon superstitions of their neighbors, we find this rather detailed narrative of a fellow named Micha, who most of us call him Micah, who lives in the northern hills of the territory of Ephraim. Now, Micha was a well-to-do Hebrew, might have even been rich. And this is reflected in the previous chapter where Micah's story begins and he is just admitted to stealing 1,100 pieces of silver from his own mother. A very sizable sum of money to have on hand in those days. Now 200 pieces of that silver was used to cast an image of Jehovah where it would be placed in Micah's private home sanctuary along with some other gods and idols. Now Micah even went so far is to hire and then consecrate upon his own authority an itinerant Levite as his priest. Thus we see how confused and mixed up Israel's religion had become in only a generation after Joshua's outstanding leadership of Israel ended in his death. Now hopefully we can take it to heart that it is easy, if not natural and inevitable, that men will gravitate away from God's truths and towards something more to our liking. The result being a set or many sets of traditions and customs and doctrines that sound quite pious and good and peaceful and right. But in fact, many of these doctrines are not actually in line with the Word of God. Probably... Judeo-Christianity can be held up as the prime example in all history of this kind of syncretism that mixes culture, agenda, personal preferences, and general comfort level with the divine oracle. So we need not be so surprised at what we read here in Judges if we'll take an honest assessment of where Judaism and the church stands today and compare that to the Bible itself. And of course, Micah, his young priest, and the men of the tribe of Dan who come to visit them don't see any wrong-mindedness in their thinking. They see no wickedness in their actions. They see no perversion in their worship before God. But this entire story is about faith gone astray and a people who deny it. Now, as we ended our last lesson, the scouts from Dan were returning to Micah's house after what in their eyes had been a wonderfully successful journey. They had stumbled across the perfect place 
to, to, for their tribe to relocate. The place was called Laish, way to the north. It was near the border of Lebanon. The city was inhabited by a gentle and peace-loving people who had no apparent alliances with any formidable kings or princes, and the area was fertile and well-watered. The, the city's defenses, though, were practically non-existent. And thus the Danites could conquer the city rather easily. Well, after the scouts went back to the Danite cities of uh, Sorah and uh, Eshtaol and reported their find to the elders and tribal leaders, 600 soldiers and their families packed up and headed north to claim their prize from the unsuspecting people of Laish. This column of around 3,000 Danites followed a trail that led by Mika's house where the five scouts decided to deal rather to steal Mika's Yehovah idol and take Mika's priest with them to become their own priest. Now, Mika's priest, by the way, wasn't kidnapped. He was offered a bigger job with more prestige and he would be a priest over an entire city and a tribe whereby currently he was only priest for a single family. It was just too tempting of an offer to refuse. Let's pick up with chapter 18 of Judges, verse 22, and uh, read it through to the end. That would be page 292 in your complete Jewish Bible. We're going to start reading at verse 22. Chapter 18. When they were a good distance from Micah's house, the men who lived in the houses near his got together and overtook the people from Dan and began shouting at them. And the people of Dan turned around and said to Micah, What's wrong with you? that you've gathered such a crowd. And he answered, Well, you've taken away my God, which I made, and gone off with the priest. What more have I got? How can you say to me, What's wrong with you? And the men from Dan replied, You'd best say no more to us, because some of us just might get angry and attack you. You could lose your life, and so might the others in your household. Then the people from Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his house. So they took what Micah had made and his priest. They came to Laish, to a quiet and trusting people, and they attacked them. And they killed them, and they burned down the city. And no one came to rescue them, because it was far from Sidon. They had no dealings with other peoples. This was in the valley near Beit Rehov. And then the people of Dan rebuilt the city and settled there, and they named the city Dan after Dan their ancestor, who was born to Israel. Now, although the city had previously been called Laish, so the people of Dan set up an image for themselves. Yehonatan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, and his sons were priests for the tribe of the people of Dan until the day of exile from the land. Thus they erected for themselves Micah's idol, which he had made, and it remained there as long as the house of God was in Shiloh. Micah and the people who lived in his village were pretty upset with those soldiers of Dan who took their idols and their priests so they followed them for a while and then confronted them now Dan had 600 men who were ready to fight and apparently they had the will to do so so they turned around and threatened Micah and his posse with death if they didn't shut up 
about wanting their idols and ritual implements back. Now, knowing they couldn't win a battle against Dan, Micah and his contingent returned home empty-handed. And verse 27 explains that Dan did what they came to do. When they reached Laish, they attacked. They killed the people and burned the city. And sure enough, no one came to aid the citizens of Laish. Well, as was customary, Laish was renamed Dan. They set up that silver image they had stolen from Micah and began their cult worship with the young Levite priest presiding. Now, I told you last week that this Levite was not a real God-authorized priest because he was not from the proper priestly tri- uh, tribe of uh, Levi. And I told you, or rather the priestly line from that tribe, and I told you I'd reveal this week how I knew that. Well, here's where we find out. Verse 30 explains that this Levite's name is Yohanaton, Jonathan, and he is of the clan of Gershom. See, the problem is, that Gershom was a clan of regular Levites, while only those from the clan of Aaron could be priests. But there is also a confusing reference to Manasseh contained within this Levite's identity, but Manasseh is in no way connected to the tribe of Levi. So what gives here? Well, Let's look at this briefly because it gives us a very interesting insight into the minds of those who penned the Bible that we read today. The issue is a translation error that is somewhat intentional. The consonants that form the the name of Jonathan's, Yohanatan's family line is spelled in the oldest text available that are translated in many Bibles as Manesha, or like here in our, just like here in our complete Jewish Bible, are M-S-H or, or, or Mame Shin He right, in the Hebrew alphabet. Now, these are the same consonants that form the name Moses. Right, now remember, the original Hebrew script only uses consonants, no vowels. However, what we actually find is that a tiny in, a noon, was written above and between the mem and the sheen. Now remember, although I'm saying mem, sheen, hey, this is the mem, sheen, hey, going that direction. I'm, I wrote it out for you here, left to right, and here, right to left, this is the Hebrew script. Point being that the nun didn't belong there. It was added at some later date by an editor who didn't want to corrupt the text, but in a strange way of thinking, by placing the letter nun above the, the, uh, the line, above the other letters, it allowed the reader to choose whether to say Moses or Manesha. Now, why would they do such a thing? Well, if left alone, it says that Jonathan was of the clan of Gershon, son of Moses. By adding the Nun, it says Jonathan was of the clan of Gershon, but Gershon, son of Manesha. The Talmud 
explains this anomaly and the reason behind it. It says this, Was he, Jonathan, the son of Gershom, or was he not rather a son or descendant of Moses? And as it is written, the sons of Moses were Gershon and Eleazar. But because of the wicked deeds of Manasseh, the idolatrous son of Hezekiah, the scriptures assign Gershom to the family of Manasseh. Rabbi bar said, the prophet studiously avoided calling Gershom the son of Moses because it would have been ignominious to Moses to have an ungodly son, meaning Jonathan. So he, the later editor of Judges, calls this person the son of Manasseh by raising the nun above the line to show that it might be either inserted or omitted. Interesting. Bottom line, whoever edited the oldest Hebrew scriptures we currently have felt it disrespectful to Moses to link this Levite disguising as a priest to him. So since Manasseh was known to be idolatrous, he had a bad name already, it was better to assign this fake priest to Manasseh's family instead of sullying Moses' name. There you have it. Now, interestingly, the Greek Septuagint, which was written about 250 years before Christ, didn't offer this option. They more accurately say that Yohanan was indeed a descendant of Moses, which he was. Now, this is not the only place this kind of thing happens in the Bible. All right? And sometimes I'll pause to point these out to you when it's, when it's appropriate. Anyway, let's move on. Okay, this chapter ends with an interesting reference to Micah's idol being used by the tribe of Dan. It says, as long as the house of God was in Shiloh. Shiloh. Now, Shiloh was where the wilderness tabernacle was located. Some of you have actually been to that spot with me. Fascinating to go up there. You could actually see the, the holes it bored in the rock where the posts of the outer court of the tabernacle were set. Quite amazing. And um, it was semi-permanently, I would say, is the best description, located there when Israel first entered the Promised Land. It was there that the priesthood operated. It would all later be transferred to Bethel and we'll even find the Ark of the Covenant getting moved around quite a bit even more than the sacred tent got moved around. Point being that almost immediately after Joshua wasn't around to run things with an iron rod, every element of Hebrew society began backsliding at an alarming rate. Thus the resounding and repeated underlying premise for the entire book of Judges. There was no king in Israel, so every man did what was right in his own eyes. Let's move on to Judges chapter 19. Judges chapter 19. 
In those days when there was no king in Israel, there was a certain levy living on the far side of the Ephraim hills who took a woman from Bethlehem in Yehuda to be his concubine. But his concubine was unfaithful to him and left him to go to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah where she stayed for some time, four months. Then her husband went after her to persuade her to return. He had his servant with him and a pair of donkeys. She brought him into her father's house and when the girl's father saw him, he was glad to meet him. His father-in-law, the girl's father, kept him there. So he remained with him for three days. They ate, drank, and stayed there. On the fourth day, they got up early in the morning, and he prepared to leave. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, You'll feel better if you have a bite of food before you leave. So the two of them sat down and ate and drank together. Then the girl's father said to the man, Please stay one more night. Have a good time. And the man rose to leave, but his father-in-law pressed him. So he stayed there again. The morning of the fifth day he got up to leave, but the girl's father said, now, Why don't you have something to eat and leave this afternoon? So the two men ate, and when the man got up to leave with his concubine and his servant, his father-in-law, the girl's father said to him, Look, it's almost evening. Just please stay the night. You see it's getting way too late. Stay on, enjoy yourself. Tomorrow get up early and go on your way. But the man wouldn't stay that night. So he got up and left with his concubine and his two saddled donkeys, and they arrived at Yevus, also known as Yerushalayim. And by the time they arrived at Yevus, it was early morning, or rather early evening, and the servant said to his master, Why don't we go on into this city of the Yevusi and stay there? But his master said to him, We won't go into a city of foreigners, which doesn't belong to the people of Israel. We'll go on across to Giba. And he said to his servant, Let's go, and we'll get to one of those places. We'll stay in either Geba or Ramah. So they went on and kept traveling until the sun set on them there, Geba, which belongs to Benjamin. There they turned off the road to go and stay in Geba, and he went in and sat down in the city's open space, since no one had offered his home for them to spend the night. In time at night fall an old man, came from his work in the field. He was from the Ephraim hills and staying in Geba, although the residents were of Benjamin. And the old man looked up and saw the traveler in the city's open space and said, Where are you going and where are you coming from? And he replied, Well, we're crossing from Bethlehem and Judah to the far side of the Ephraim hills. That's where I'm from. I went to Beth, uh, Bethlehem and Judah, and now I'm going to the house of Adonai. But there's no one here who will let me spend the night in his home. We have straw and food for our donkeys and bread and wine for me and my concubine and the boy there with your servants. We don't need anything else. The old man said, well, you're welcome to stay with me. I'll take care of anything you lack. Just don't spend the night out in the open. So he brought him home and gave food to the donkeys and they washed their feet and ate and drank. They were relaxing when suddenly some men from the city, good for nothings, surrounded the house and began beating at the door. Send out the man who came home with you, they demanded of the old man whose house it was. We want to have sex with him. And the man whose house it was went out and said to them, No, brothers, please don't do anything as wrong as this. Look, he's a guest in my house. Don't do this degrading thing. Here, here's my daughter, who's a virgin, and his concubine. I'll bring them out. Mistreat them. Do what you want to them. But don't do such a degrading thing to this man. However, the men wouldn't listen. So the man took hold of his concubine and brought her out to them. They raped her and abused her all night long. Only at dawn did they let her go. 
At daybreak, the women came and fell down at the door. The woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house, where her husband was, and she was still there when it grew light. When her husband got up and opened the door of the house, and he went out to go on his way, he saw the woman lying there with her hands stretched out towards the door. He said, "Get up, let's go." There was no answer, so he loaded her body on the donkey and began his trip home. On arrival at his house, he got a knife. He took hold of his concubine's body. He cut her up into twelve pieces, and sent them all to all the regions of Israel. Everyone who saw it said, "From the day the people of Israel came up, came up from Egypt until now, never has such a thing happened or been seen. What are we going to do about it? Talk it over and decide." This story probably took place even earlier than the story of Micah, the silver image of God and the Levite who masqueraded as priest. It represents one of the most infamous outrages against the Lord that's recorded in Holy Scriptures. One that authors of biblical writings of much later eras referred to, so well known and repeated in their culture, was this sad episode. Now the theme of the book of Judges begins the story with there was no king in Israel. There was no law and order because there was no central authority. Now although this sojourning Levite who lived in the hills of Ephraim sounds an awful lot like our previous story, it's not the same fellow at all. But it, it does illustrate that Micah's Levite hireling was not an isolated instance at all. It had become quite common for Levites to seek position and advancement wherever they could find it. Now the setup is that this anonymous Levite living in the more northern area of Ephraim had taken on a concubine whose family home was in Bethlehem of Judah, meaning that she was not a Levite, but rather a Judahite. But at some point, there was some kind of serious problem. And the woman left the man and went back to her father. And verse 2 explains the nature of the problem. Or maybe it doesn't. The complete Jewish Bible, along with the King James Version, and many others, says that the concubine was unfaithful to her Levite husband. Or some say outright that she played the harlot or acted like a whore. Now in Hebrew, the latter translation is absolutely the correct one because the Hebrew word used to describe her was that she was a sona, meaning a prostitute. Or in some other manuscripts, it says she behaved zana, which means she acted in an unfaithful manner. However, other translations will say she was angry with her husband and left him. And these are equally good translations because the ones about her being angry are drawn from ancient Aramaic texts and also from the Greek Septuagint which speak of anger and not unfaithfulness or sexual immorality on her part. 
The general consensus of rabbis is that the Levite and his concubine had an argument of some kind. She had not been unfaithful to him, at least not sexually speaking. The reason is that by both the Mosaic law and the customs and traditions of that era, a concubine or a wife who had an adulterous affair was to be summarily executed. There's no hint in this story that she was in any danger of being harmed. Now let me remind you that a concubine, a piligesh in Hebrew, was like a second class wife. Okay. Thus it was common for the Bible to refer to the man of that, uh, uh, as her husband. Okay. Simplistically speaking, the difference between a concubine and a wife was that a wife had a few more rights and she had a marriage contract. But concubines weren't slaves. They couldn't be mistreated any more than could a legal wife. They weren't acquired as playful sex objects or mistresses as is sometimes erroneously depicted. We see in verse 3 that her husband was concerned enough for her that after four months' time, and even though it was really only a selfish concern that he preferred her company, that he took the rather substantial journey from the hill, northern hill country of Ephraim down to Bethlehem and Judah to try and win her back. And he brought a house servant with him, undoubtedly for protection, as traveling alone in those days was pretty dangerous. And he also brought two donkeys. Now one of them was for her to ride on the hoped-for return journey. And undoubtedly several gifts were for both the concubine and her father were provided as well. Now the fact that she brought her husband into her father's house when he arrived shows that whatever caused the split up, it wasn't irreconcilable. And it also says that her father was glad to meet him. Translation, the father was very relieved that this daughter would be going back to her husband. Now, I say that not in the sense that it probably sounds to us today and that you're kind of giggling about as though he wanted to get rid of his daughter. But rather, it's in the sense that it was a very dishonorable thing for a family to have a girl get married or become a concubine and then become separated from her husband. Very shameful. If, God forbid, that separation grew to an outright divorce, it brought great shame upon the whole family regardless of the reason or who might be to blame. Dad had really been sweating this out. Well, on the fourth day after his arrival, the Levite man was ready to leave with his concubine, but the father-in-law wanted him to stay a little longer. And likely this was just a simple matter of Middle Eastern hospitality. Visitors were rare. Protocol required the most to make the most of your time together. The father-in-law pressed on the Levite to stay. He agreed to, but on the fifth day, he took his concubine and left in the late afternoon. Now, the Levite and his concubine and his servant set out for home, and the route took them to Jebus. Jebus. This was the name of the city that would eventually 
be called Yerushalayim, Jerusalem. Now, Jebus was around six miles from Bethlehem, Bethlehem, which is down to the south of it, around a two-hour walk. And the people who founded and controlled the city of Jebus were Jebusites. Right? Um, but in reality, they were just some other group of Canaanites. And since it was getting near to sundown, the servant suggested that they spend the night inside the massive defensive walls of Jebus, but the Levite refused, because indeed Jebus was a city of non-Israelites at this time. Instead, he preferred that they travel just a little bit further and stay in a village or a city that was occupied by Hebrews. Gibeah, or Gibeah, right, or Ramah, which is a little bit further down the road. Well, they only made it as far as Gibeah by the time darkness was setting in, so they stopped there. And Gibeah was in the territory of Benjamin. So its residents were Israelites. Now verse 15 explains that they went inside the city and they sat down at what we would call the city square. Just inside the city gates. Now such a thing would make him noticeable to the city's residents as they passed in and out. Now there is a hint of what was to come though in that the reason that he sat in the square is that no one would offer them hospitality there. No one would give them a place to stay for the evening. This was a sacred duty in that era. And the failure of the local residents to offer rest and sustenance to a traveler, especially one who obviously had the means to feed himself and his animals, if needs be, was a sign that these people of this city were of very poor character. Well, at dark, an old man came through the city gates, a man who had been working out in the fields that surrounded Gibeah. And coincidentally, this old man was from the same area that the Levite hailed and was neither a permanent resident of Gibeah nor was he of the tribe of Benjamin. That the old man did not share in the morals of Gibeah is evident in that he does the right thing and he offers to take the Levite, his concubine and servant into his dwelling place for the night. Well, of course, the old man first inquires about them and asks the logical question, where are you from? Where are you going? And the Levite is truthful and he explains where he's from and he says he's going on his way to return there. But the latter part of his answer to this old man is a little puzzling. He says that he's going to the house of Adonai, or more accurately in Hebrew it says, he's going to the Beit Yehoveh. But what does that mean that he's going to the house of Yehoveh? Almost certainly he was merely saying that he was going to go home by way of Shiloh, which was the current location of the wilderness tabernacle. He was a Levite. It would be logical that if he had an opportunity to visit the tabernacle, home of the priesthood, he'd go there to offer a sacrifice. 
But there's another implication in this scene that some Jewish scholars point out. The Levite traveler was probably recognizable as a Levite. Levites had, for some reason, quickly developed a dialect or an accent, as we saw that played a role in our previous story, that was different enough from the other Hebrews that it helped to identify them. He may well have also worn garments or some ritual object of clothing that marked him as a Levite. In any case, the reason that the town of Gibeah would not offer him hospitality was they didn't want anything to do with the priestly tribe. They may have been Israelites, Benjamites, but their hearts were far from God. Well, the Levite explained to the old man that even though they would be no burden on anyone because they carried all of their own provisions with them, the townspeople refused to offer them shelter. So the old man says, well, come and stay with him. But whatever they do, don't stay out at the city square at night. Now, this matter of avoiding bedding down in the city square, which, by the way, would have been a lawful and safe place to do exactly that under most circumstances, had little to do with their discomfort. Rather, it was a dire warning from someone who knew these townspeople very well. Well, the next scene is reminiscent of the sad adventure of Lot while he was living in the city of Sodom. The old man was playing host to his guests when suddenly there was a knock on the door. In fact, his house was surrounded by some worthless men of Gibeah who were demanding that he send out the Levites so they could have homosexual sex with him. Now in the Hebrew, these worthless men are called Bain Belial, or sons of Belial. A very derogatory expression. It is used in many places in the Bible. And it is used to label those who commit idolatry or some kind of gross rebellion against God or who commit lewd and immoral acts. And it says that these sons of Belial dafach upon the old man's door. This definitely does not mean to knock. Nor does it even mean to merely beat Rather, it means to beat violently with an ever-increasing force. This was a mob. It meant business. They weren't going to take no for an answer. The old man had to address this situation. He couldn't just huddle inside and hope these perverts went away. So he opened his door to address them. Now, before I discuss with you what he offered to the crowd in hopes of appeasing them... Let me first explain why he offered it. I've explained many times the Oriental mindset concerning hospitality. And among the several things that hospitality entailed in that era, protection of the house guest was paramount. There was no greater shame than for a host to allow something terrible to befall a guest in his home. And of course, in that era, we're talking about male guests. 
hosts were obligated by custom to defend their guests with the cost of their own lives or their families' lives, if necessary. Just as families today have set up an unspoken hierarchy whereby the children are protected at all costs by the adult family members and even the younger children are sometimes protected almost out of instinct by the older children, it was the same sort of thing with families that took in travelers whom they'd never even met before. So the old man offers to send out his own unmarried daughter, called a virgin, as well as the Levite's concubine for them to gang rape in trade for keeping the male safe. In ancient times, and still in many Eastern societies today, including the more fundamental sects of Islam, women are chattel. Women have far less value than men. Very often, less value than their farm animals. The laws of Moses were the first to value women equally with men. And to insist on the humane treatment of women. And to give women far more rights than they had ever known before. Don't get me wrong. The Bible still presents a hierarchy whereby men are to be the authority. But men are to be an authority over women in love and for the purpose of caring for them. Not for the purpose of using them or virtually enslaving them. However, worldwide customs and traditions infiltrate everything. And the Hebrew society remained a male-dominated society. What we see happening in this regard to the women in this story is not acceptable before the Lord. Let me also point out what makes this story so extraordinarily shocking. Certainly that homosexuality is at the center of it is undeniable. And it is at the top of the list of godless perversions throughout the Bible. Old Testament and New. But what we must also see is that while we've witnessed this all before in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, at least the residents of those cities were pagans. They didn't know God. But the men of Gibeah who are demanding homosexual sex with this old man's male guest here in the book of Judges are Hebrews. They're of the tribe of Benjamin. They had the Torah. Their parents were part of the Exodus. Joshua had only recently died. This mob consisted of God's set-apart people who were no more than one generation removed from Moses. The old man handed over his daughter and the Levites' concubine to the men of Gibeah, no doubt with the Levites' consent, who chose to sacrifice this woman to save himself. They were abused all night long and only ceased at daybreak. Nothing more is said of the old man's daughter, but we're informed that the concubine somehow made it back to the doorstep of the dwelling where her husband was in hiding and there died of her injuries with her hands reaching out towards the bolted door. At daybreak, the Levite went outside to leave. There he found his woman. He told her to get up so they could get on their way. But of course, there was no response. He immediately knew she was dead. 
So he loaded her corpse on one of the two donkeys and left for home. Now, it is not only the horrific action of these men of Gibeah that are on display here, but the callous and cold heart of that Levite who was utterly indifferent to his concubine's suffering. I said at the beginning of this story that I suspected that the entire reason for the Levite going after his concubine in the first place after she angrily left him and went home to her father was selfish. He preferred to have her company than not. That's about as far as it went. Perhaps he thought her leaving him would be an embarrassment. So he went to Bethlehem to fetch her back with gifts and a donkey for her to ride home. But this was simply the price needed to get her back. A price he could afford with little discomfort. But that price certainly didn't include, in his mind, any risk-taking, certainly no repentance, nor did it mean that he would love her and protect her. The sin of Gibeah would be long remembered and mentioned many centuries later in various books of the Bible. For instance, in Hosea 9.9 and 10.9, so great was the shame that this brought upon all Israel. Hosea 9.9 says, They have deeply corrected themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their guilt and will punish their sins. 10.9 Since the days of Gibeah you have sinned, Israel. There they took their stand for these arrogant people at Gibeah. War was insufficient punishment for them. Well, when the Levite arrived home, he did something so drastic that it's hard to even read about it without cringing. He took his concubine's body and cut her up into 12 pieces sending one piece by messenger to each Israelite tribe. I don't even know where to begin to talk about this. The Levite obviously had no regard for, her, for his concubine before or after her death. That he would cut up her body is a terrible desecration that is simply not allowed by Torah standards. She was to be properly buried, not used as a means for this Levite to display his anger. But the Hebrew word used here for cutting up, or or actually better, dividing her body into pieces, is a word that is normally reserved for tabernacle ritual. The word is nathach. Nathach. And nathach means to divide up the sacrificial animal into pieces before putting it onto the altar of burnt offering. That it is used here is out of place and thus seems to indicate that the Levite had some delusional sense of piety or or righteous anger or some twisted belief that if he was the one doing the cutting up because he was a Levite, that it made it a proper religious act for him to do it. Taken together with the other young Levite of our previous story who allowed himself to become a priest when he wasn't even of the proper lineage, 
and even to worship teraphim, God idols, and then that he would leave Micah to go be a priest for the tribe of Dan and set up cult worship in Laish paints a pretty bad picture of the Hebrew religious leaders of the era of the judges. See, the Levites were the butchers of that era. They were highly trained in just how to dissect an animal for sacrificial purposes and then later on how to prepare an animal for food according to kosher traditions that slowly developed. Even today, it's usually Levites who will run kosher butcher chops. This Levite man in this story simply applied his skill to his dead concubine for personal reasons. Things like this don't go unnoticed. Verse 30 explains that when the people saw this, they were appalled as they had never seen such an awful thing happen, at least among their own culture. The question on everybody's mind was, what do we do about this? What should be done about these homosexual men in Gibeah who literally raped this concubine to death? But also, what should be done about the tribe of Benjamin in general who apparently didn't show enough interest in this matter to even think about bringing those men to justice? That's what's dealt with in the final two chapters of the book of Judges and we'll get into that next time.